Well, good morning, all, and welcome back. Lovely to have you. You've probably forgotten what we're even talking about, because it's been interrupted a few times, but we're talking about the Nicene Creed. So um, let's pray, and we'll talk about the Creed. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, you've given us the Creed so that we have a place to put our heart. We pray that as we study and learn and interact, you would indeed help shape where we put the intention of our will so that we can be better disciples for you. Amen. Okay, so I think we made it all the way through the first line of the creed, didn't we? <laughs> right? We believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And now we're on the next phrase, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, right? God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. So what's important to know is that the Apostles' Creed, and we talked about this before, is older than the Nicene Creed and much shorter. The Apostles' Creed, does anybody know when we use that liturgically? There's one major sacramental service where we say the Apostles' Creed and not the Nicene Creed. At the baptism. And it's, and it's a catechism, right? The, 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 the celebrant says, do you believe in God the Father? And you say back, I believe, right? So the older Nicene Creed, remember, is all about I, and we've changed it in 76 to the we, and we talked about, we talked about that. The Apostles' Creed doesn't have all the bit about God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made right? It's much shorter than that. And each one of these phrases historically is meant to counter some claim in the fledgling Christian community that was deemed heterodox, which really just is a fancy way of saying heretical or blasphemous, right? So, you know, we say orthodox, which is the right view. Heterodox is the different view, <laughs> meaning the wrong one, right? This is the, 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 the important thing here. Um, and we get to Jesus, and, and there's a lot. In fact, most of the creed is about Jesus. And I told you, in the history of the creed, that makes the most sense because what happened in the Nicene Creed was this huge debate by the priest Arius from Alexandria against his presiding bishop, Alexander of Alexandria, right? And the creed gets made, remember, with Constantine sitting in the, um, he's the one sitting in the bishop's seat, so he's the one ruling over the council. And, and the tough thing to remember is Constantine was an Arian. So he approved and enforced a creed he didn't believe in himself. Because he believed, and this is really the substance to take you back to the argument, that Jesus was a created being. So God the Father was eternal, and Jesus was not quite eternal. And so that geometrical argument goes something like this. A line is infinite in both directions. The length of a line is therefore infinite. A ray has a discrete beginning, but goes on indefinitely. And what do you know? The length of a ray is infinitely long. <laughs> now that is so crazy, which is why we don't teach geometry to five-year-olds, because it's nonsense. It's so nonsensical, right, that higher mathematicians have come up with tiers of, tiers of infinity. Does anybody know this stuff? Tiers of infinity? Oh, thank God. Oh, you know it. Okay, I was going to say, I'm a bunch of, I'm a, these are people that sent human beings to the moon which just goes to show you that engineers solve problems and mathematicians make them. <laughs> so these tiers of infinity are actually represented, they were represented by a Jewish mathematician who came up with all of sets, sets of, of infinity. Anyway, um, the question is, is Jesus equally infinite with God or is Jesus of a lower tier of, of infinity? And Arius seized on some really interesting scriptural verses that say, Jesus is the firstborn of creation. And Arius took that quite literally. Creation was made through Jesus, who himself 
was a created being. And remember, the appeal for Constantine was that God is like the emperor, Jesus is like his viceroy, and then the Holy Spirit is somewhere over there. But the important thing is that there is this hierarchy in the Godhead, and that supports the hierarchy of the emperor. So it was, it was practical. And quite honestly, um, thinking about an equal community, which is something that we try to think through, is not really easy for us either. I mean, honestly, to think through a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each one of them is A, co-eternal, and B, they exist in this community, how do they make decisions? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, which one was first? The answer from the, from, the Nicene, from the Council of Nicaea is none of them were first because all of them occur eternal. But that's just as confusing. There's no human analog to that, right? And again, I've touched this before biblically, and, and you can do whatever you want with this, but um, I'm reminded of this every time I visit with my parents, as friendly as I get with my parents, and no matter how much we tell the truth to each other, they're my parents, we're not going to be co-eternal. <laughs> Do you, you know what I mean? Uh, there's always going to be a hierarchical division because they named me. I called them mom and dad. And those are different titles than son or daughter. And they just are, and they never go away. I, I, for me, that's the case. Maybe you've got different relationships with your parents. But if that's the human analog, imagine how difficult it is then to think about the Godhead, which has no analog. So Arius said, no, God is like what we see. And quite honestly, and I think this is important to think through in the creed, whether we say God is this and equal, in general, our practice is to the contrary. First of all, which being in the Holy Trinity gets the least amount of airtime? The Holy Spirit, because what is that, right? I know what a father's like, and I know what a son's like. Holy Spirit, I have no idea what that is. So I grew up Southern Baptist, right? Nothing bad against Baptist folks, but the way we prayed, everything had to be in the name of Jesus, because the name of Jesus had more power to it than the Holy Spirit, which isn't a name anyway, right? And, and the Father, which is not really kind of name, it's like a title. Does this make sense? Have you been around people that, that insert the word Jesus like it's a comma or a semicolon? or even a breath mark. And they do it because of the conviction that Jesus is the one who's the ultimate prayer grantor. There's power in the name of Jesus. Once you adopt that stance, you've actually reinverted the hierarchy anywhere where you put Jesus on top, and then the Father and the Spirit, I mean, maybe they're a eternal, but they don't listen as well. So you, you pray to the person on top. Do you, do you know what I mean? Well, and if that's no good, then maybe you need somebody over here to make Jesus listen to you. Let's call her Mary if you want to, right? Because the king is too important, but the king's mom is more accessible. And as with all people, mom has a little more influence than just regular folks. That story even bears out in the Gospels, right? Remember, uh, they say, hey, we've run out of wine. And Jesus says, lady, <laughs> talking to his mother, don't make me do anything before my time. And then she says, do whatever he tells you, <laughs> right? So he's just, Jesus has just rejected he's going to do anything until Mary does what my mom does, which is forces him to do something. Right? So you just think through all of why this is complicated and difficult, and that's, that's why we get so much about Jesus in the creed. The creed is really struggling with language. Think about this one. Begotten, not made. I'm sorry, but when you read the Bible, Adam begat Seth and Cain and Abel. What does that mean? Doesn't that just mean like he was the father of? preceded. So the creed has seized on this nebulous word that we don't use. Nobody says 
hey, my wife was pregnant, we went into labor, and she begat my daughter. <laughs> I guess some people probably say that. They don't have any friends. So, <laughs> so, so, so this creed has seized on this nebulous word and tried to, to force it into some non-linguistic category. Because there's really not a word we have in English or an analog we have that makes, that makes this sense. Light from light, God from God. Well, now you start to think God from God, light from light. That's, that's, whew, that's tough a little bit because light came from the light. So the other light was first. Then comes the big climax of the creed, quite honestly. So by the way, these little phrases were all directed towards splinter little groups that talked about how Jesus isn't light or how Jesus isn't really God. So, so not the same bit. The big word you get to in the creed of one being with the Father is this word right here, homoousia. So um, this one you recognize one or same in Greek. In Latin means something different, right? And this is the word uh, substance. And that's a, tough, that's a tough word, the substance, and, and it comes back to something that I've mentioned to you historically before, which is um, uh, philosopher Plato. Uh, remember, if you remember this, Plato is the, the student of, of Socrates who sort of says that the Greek gods are all nonsense. So regular people worship the Greek gods, but the Greek gods themselves are not emulatable because they're amoral, they're wicked, I mean, they're worse than human beings. So he says that's all basically tripe and nonsense. Plato says the real being, the real thing to think about is the forms, the forms. And what are the forms? The, the forms are the qualities of things that, that exist within a subcategory. So the forms are sets from which all subsets are derived. So think through about horses. Right? An Arabian and a thoroughbred and a Lippenzahner stallion actually all look a little different. They have different qualities, but they all have the form of hoarseness. And that's how you know they're a horse. So all of the subspecies are descendants of the forms. I mean, biologically, we might say they're all from the same um, species or maybe even from the genus if we were going to be really, really um, generous. Same with dogs, right? I mean, honestly, a dachshund looks nothing like a Great Dane in size or appearance, but the platonic argument is they have the form of a dog. Same with the wolves, and that's where you can hear the Canis lupus and the Canis familiaris are different species, but they have the common genus, right? They both have the form of the canine. The forms, says Plato, are actually themselves descendants of the virtues. So the virtues are these master principles like charity. And we're not thinking charity in the sense of pity. We're thinking charity, really, he means something like compassion and consideration. Right? Maybe you're wondering, what does a dog have to do with that? Well, Plato has this idea that there's inherent beauty within forms, and that beauty comes from the virtues. And, and this is important in our New Testament when you get to the Gospel of John. The, the virtues are descendants of the logos. The logos, and logos means word. But for Plato, the logos is the universal ordering principle. So when you read in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos became flesh and dwelt among us, John is making the radical claim that Jesus is the Logos. It's important to remind you, because if you're like me, you grew up hearing the Bible's the Word of God. No, it isn't. The Word of God is Jesus. That's the claim of the New Testament, right? People at the time of Constantine were very familiar with everything I've just told you because there was a resurgence in Platonism called Neoplatonism. It's where we got the idea that there was a fall from grace. That's a Platonic idea, not a biblical one. So um, Jesus is the Logos, and the question is, is the Logos co-eternal with God, or was the Logos a created being? And then we get to this word right here of one substance. This word actually is the one that Aristotle and Plato use 
perform. So that when you hear that Jesus is in the same form as God, it's sort of like saying the Great Dane and the Dachshund have the same form. Another way to do this chemically would be to say they have the same elementary signature. Three parts carbon, two parts... Do you understand what I mean? They're made of the same recipe. They have the same stuff, even if the stuff has different representations. At the molecular level, they're comprised of exactly the same thing. So there's this little bit of bumbling in language about begotten, not made, light from light, God from God, until you get to that word that says, if God's eternal and Jesus is in the same form of God, Jesus is also eternal. Not like a ray is, but like a line is. Does that make sense? And all again of that bumbling language is meant to guide people who are really trying to figure out what does a trinity mean? Because for the last 500 years in Judaism, they've been fighting against any plurality within the Godhead. They're fighting really hard against polytheistic paganism. So if you say, yeah, sure, there's the Father, and then there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit, pagans get all that. Look, there's three gods, and why stop at three? It's the great thing about polytheism, right, is there's always room for one more. <laughs> but when you say there's one, that becomes tough, particularly because they come up with the statement that God is no more one than three. Try getting your head around that one. <laughs> Difficult to do. In fact, most people don't do it. We usually just stop here, and the one we stop with is not even the Father or the Spirit, it's Jesus. Which is very un-Nicene of us. Yes, ma'am. What caused the argument about the Trinitarian nature of God? What started yeah. It's a great question because you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible. Now, I just want to tell you something to preface that answer. If we were in a different denominational environment, that's a real dangerous question for me to answer. Because once I say what I'm getting ready to say, you would say, well, you're wrong. The historical argument is that people were baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit long before there was a doctrine about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. People were doing that thing, and then they had to justify the thing people were doing. Why did they start doing it? Don't know. This is one of these things that's one of these, these big Latin... Um, Phrases, and, and Nick can read it better than I can, I'm sure. Any historical book you read in general about theology, unless it was written by a nut job, is going to say something like this, lex orandi, lex credendi. The things that are practiced are the things that are given credence. So we often think we start from category and we get to practice, and in general, no, 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 we start from practice and then we go the other way. So there was this meaningful practice happening in the early church. It was happening in prayer. And there's another book you can read if you're interested. It's not fun. It's really long. They make you read it when you want to get ordained. Beware. It's called Praying Shapes Believing. Because the way we pray shapes the way we believe more often than the way we believe shapes the way we pray. It's interesting to think about. Interesting. I'll give you some examples of that if you're, not, if you're not buying it. But basically, the earliest Christians were doing this, and then theologians went backward from the practice and reread the Bible. They did things like, oh, in Genesis 1, when the Spirit of God is over the waters, that's the Holy Spirit. No Jewish person believes that at all. They read that and say, the Spirit of God, that's the breath of God. God was blowing on top of the waters. <sighs> blowing them apart so that there could be a creation outside of the water. That's probably what that text really means in its original understanding, right? 
And notice that God's breath is not distinct from God, right? That's God's the actor, God's the agent. This is all God, one. Bob? And the answer is no. And Holy Spirit's a tough bit anyway. In the New Testament, there's words like paraclete, which we often translate advocate. Advocate. And we'll get to the Holy Spirit later, because in the, the original Nicene Creed, the one in 325, we talk all about Jesus, right? And then we say, and we believe in God, the Holy Spirit, period. <laughs> Rather amorphous. None of the business about you know, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and Son, worshiped and glorified. None of that was original to the Nicene Creed. That all came at the Council of Chalcedon like 56 years later. Which shows you, right, that people were in the process of figuring out their theology and what it meant for their belief. And in that intervening 61 years, people thought on the Holy Spirit and they came up with some stuff. Does, does that make sense, what I'm saying? I hope this does not make you terribly uncomfortable, right? I mean, in general, one way to view Scripture and councils is that it's not necessarily that God is in the process of changing, but people sure are in the process of changing how they understand God. And were in existence before Jesus, right? Because there's people like John who were, I mean, John precedes Jesus. Yes, but they weren't baptizing in the Very fair, very fair. We don't actually know how old that formula is. We just know it predates the council. Yeah. Okay, so that got us through this line, through him all things were made, right? Through him all things were made. Again, through him all things were made is an Arian argument. That's not new. This is the piece that's new. Same form as God, which means they're both in the same tier of infinity. Um, then we get into some interesting bits of the creed. You know, I don't know if you're like me. For me to think through what comes next in the creed, I have to start from the very beginning. You ever have to do that? There was one day where the line in the Sursum Corda got left out. The first two lines were there and the third line wasn't there. And I just had to sit there and re-sing it all in my head because I didn't remember it. <laughs> That's sad. Okay. Um, for us and for our salvation, right? For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made, we say, man. So there's, this is an interesting line here. For, first of all, that... Tier of infinity, number one, God, for us, for us, becomes incarnate. Not for God's self, but for us. I mean, it's interesting to think about, right? And you can actually hang a lot of different opinions about what that incarnation means on that line. God did it for us. I need to think through this. Okay? Because the way I grew up is God did it for God. What, what's the difference? The way I grew up is God did it for God because imperfect people who sin create this fundamental um, disrespect and out-of-balance action in the universe. When a law is broken, somebody must be punished so that there can be restoration. Remember, I've told you this idea is only 1,000 years old. It's not 2,000 years old. It comes to us from none other than, of course, a lawyer. So... <laughs> Lawyer. Yep. So lawyer comes up with this idea, somebody has to be punished in order for God to have perfect justice. The punishment deserved for any single sin, this is not that original lawyer's idea, this came later, is eternal hell and torment. 
because that's, the, that's perfect justice. I actually think that's terrible justice. That makes no sense to me, nor should it make any sense to you. <laughs> but that's the idea. So someone's got to pay the price. It's got to be you, except God saves you by dying vicariously in your place. God had to do that for God's own justice to be satisfied, goes the argument. God did it for God. Does that reasoning make sense? If God didn't do it, then God could not save you. God needed somebody to be punished because law was broken. That argument is saying that unless somebody gets punished in your place, you have to go to hell because God demands punishment. So the reason Jesus dies is to fulfill God's necessity of someone being punished for breaking the law. The creed does not say that. <laughs> the creed says, for us, God did this. God didn't need to do it. We needed to have it. Think how different that is. And this is really important. This is where I get accused of being a low sacramentarian as if that matters, right? I mean, I think grace is grace. Who needs babies to be baptized? It isn't God, it's us. Otherwise, we believe in magic. Do you, uh, really, this is, this is tough, right? Did God need to be born and live a life and killed so we could be forgiven, or was God able to forgive us without doing that? Does that make sense, what I'm saying? And this way, the creed actually has a lot of room into some thinking. What Jesus did was for our sake, not for God's sake. So those people who think that <clears throat> Jesus died for God's sake, do they also think that Jesus went to hell? Because so glad you asked. The Apostles' Creed says he did. He descended not to the dead. You know your Apostles' Creed, right? He descended into hell. And this comes the doctrine that on Holy Saturday, Jesus harrows hell. He busts the gates open. That's where all that comes from, right? Jesus basically received the same punishment that everybody was going to get, but in so doing, he broke the doors of the punishment. And you get some really interesting ideas, like from C.S. Lewis, who says, hey, the gates, the gates to hell are open, so leave. <laughs> you don't have to stay there. Now, that's an interesting thought, right? Because a lot of us continue to live in hells of our own making throughout our entire life. So, so this is interesting, and just to, just to catch you up on this, and I don't want to bore you to tears, there's basically three early ideas about what Jesus did. The first one I've already told you, Jesus is what's called a penal substitute. So we deserve the penalty, he took our place. This comes from a theologian named Anselm of Canterbury. It's the one that won the day. So this, in general, is probably what 99% of Christian people today believe. There's another guy named Peter Abelard who says Jesus came as a moral exemplar. He came to show us a way of life. And then there's this other guy named Gustav Alin who says Jesus came to trick the devil. <laughs> none of that's in. None of that's in. None of that's in the creed, right? And, and truth be told, right, there's obviously merits to both ways of thinking that Jesus' death does something for us in the end, and Jesus' life does something for us as well, you know? Interesting thing to think about, though, what if 
people decided not to kill Jesus. I don't know if you ever thought about that. <laughs> It's very possible. Or, or we might have a completely day, way of behaving around God. You know? Well, we might not have Easter, but we certainly wouldn't have Black Friday either. Right? And Black Friday was the dominant phrase until it became good in the somewhat recent, somewhat recent past. It's a black day. God comes for our sake and we kill Jesus. And this is what's important. If you believe just like this, Friday's a good day because it, it helps God help us. If you go this way, it's a black day because, look, we missed the example we were supposed to be living. The good lining is God helps us anyway. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. These people are writing in the year 1000-ish. So that's 700 years after the creed. We just sort of think through how long it's taken to get around there. But the creedal language is interesting because, again, it's not for God, it's for us. The other thing that's interesting, and, and the, moral, the moral or the, the light of our life is an interesting way to think, for our salvation, we often think as a result of this and the idea that all of our um, Righteousness is filthy rags to God. Anybody heard that before? Our righteousness is filthy rags to God? No? How about Eucharistic prayer one, there is no good in us? You heard that one before? Um, wow, that comes really pushing this to the extreme, which Anselm didn't even do. So we often think, and, and I really think I'm not exaggerating to say, most Christian people say salvation is about what happens after we die and it's related to us not going to hell. The creed doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible doesn't say that either. Jesus often says to people, today salvation has come to this home, not meaning likely they'll go to heaven when they die, but they've already entered God's imagination more so today. The way they're living has been saved. It can be both. It can be both. But the limit to something that happens after we die is not biblical. So for us and for our salvation, for our life on earth and beyond, for both of those things, he came down from heaven. Notice that does assume that the universe has three tiers. There's earth in the middle, there's heaven above us, and below us is Hades or Sheol or Tartarus. We don't believe in that universe anymore, but we sure do believe in the idea, and think through this, that God comes down from somewhere that God did not have to do this. <laughs> it buttresses the idea that God did this for us. God left a place of privilege, of painlessness and timelessness to enter time and suffer limitations. That's in the creed. That's, that's nice. That's good stuff, right? Am I going too fast or too boring? And then that gets us to this interesting phrase, right? By the power of the Holy Spirit, he came incarnate from the Virgin Mary and became... Well, it says, when we say, it says, became man, and this is important, actually, but that's not how the creed actually reads. So there's two different words in Greek. There's anthropos, which means human, and there's aneir, which means man. And then you probably recognize this one, ladies. The word for woman in Greek is gune, like a gynecologist is a woman doctor, right? And we forget this one because anair doesn't show up. There's not an anerocologist, which is a man doctor, right? You go see somebody, you go see a prostate specialist. <laughs> um, 
we make a big mistake in thinking that anthropos means man. It actually means human. So I'm going to work backward from the end of the phrase. For our sake, says the creed, Jesus became human. I know what you're thinking. Mike, that doesn't make a difference to me. It makes a big difference to me. That Jesus became human. And it's more important that he's a human being than that he's a type of human being. I don't know if that makes sense. Some people who are looking to say, where are women in the Nicene Creed? Well, right here is the first place. For our sake, Jesus became a human being. And his humanness is more important, says the creed, than his maleness. How do I know that? If maleness were important, they'd have picked that word, and they didn't. Uh, the gendered language is really important to me because praying shapes believing. <laughs> and when we pray in gendered words, then we start to believe in gendered categories. I believe that. So it's nice to know the creed wasn't written that way. There's another interesting thing. Actually, in Greek, the way this phrase reads, <laughs> by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, as if the two of them are acting together, not the Holy Spirit through the vessel Mary, but the two people, the Spirit and Mary, are active collaborators in the process. Reads a little different in Greek than it does in English, right? became incarnate of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary became incarnate and was made human. That's how creed reads in Greek. Shore makes Mary, again, much more active and less a vessel for God than a collaborator. Well, think through that, right? It's a nice idea to think that we can collaborate with God instead of just being vessels. Don't you think? Say again. And it's terrible theology. No one can co-create. Nobody can do it, biblically. I just, I, I've got to hammer this home. In the Apostles' Creed, God is the creator of heaven and earth, and when we get to Nicene Creed, God makes it. Biblically, the only actor on the verb create is God. Human beings can create nothing. We can only make stuff. That is, if God's made all the elements, we can mix them up. We can't make new elements. I know what you're thinking, Mike. We can, too, make new elements. We just, you know, use them in a particle collider. So the argument breaks down there a little bit, right? But, but the idea is, and this is really important when we talked about the first week, right, is that um, biblically, God creates human beings and says, in, my, in, in God's image and likeness, and says, very good. It's really important biblical theology. Human beings can't uncreate that. We have no power to create. All we can do is take something that God says is fundamentally very good and try to muck it up. But we can't prevail because God created it very good. So when you get to this uh, Reformation theology that says human beings are totally depraved in the image and likeness of God, that's T in the Calvinist position. Martin Luther believed that as well. It's not biblical because God didn't make us in God's image. God created us. And because human beings can't co-create. We can collaborate. We can work with God, but we can't make stuff. I mean, we can't create stuff that's fundamentally new, right? Again, the difference between creation and making is something like the law of thermodynamics, right? Energy can't be created or destroyed. All the energy is already there. All we can do is use it funny and convert it funny, but we can't make more or less of it because it's already created. That's probably a better argument than the elements. I don't know anything about science. I had a biology class in the 10th grade. I passed it. Isn't that sad? And I have a liberal arts education, too. I didn't have to take science in college. Okay, so I didn't. Um, collaborators, though, were good. I didn't mean to hammer you. I just, I, I, I can't overemphasize that, that, again, what's important is when the Bible, when only God creates, is that human beings can't actually change that stuff. It's really important. 
really important. Because again, most Christian people believe that we're born fundamentally flawed. Something wrong with this. To use the prayer book language, there's no good in us. That's a feeling, but it cannot biblically be a reality. It's not up to us. We can fight our creation, but we can't win because we're not strong enough. Yes, sir. The original language of the creed sheds a lot of light on the elevation of marriage in the Catholic Church. Sure does. Well, and you know also part of what's happened in the Catholic Church, and we'll get to this at the end, but there's the father, the patrifamilias, who I told you is really more of a role than a gender. There's the son, who's a human being, but we forget about that, because son is masculine. And then there's the Holy Spirit, and it might intrigue you to know that linguistically in Hebrew, spirit is feminine. In Greek, spirit is neuter. But the church decided that the Holy Spirit's masculine. Because in their culture, masculine people had all the power. So now there's something missing from the Trinity that is inherent in human relationships. There's no woman. Here's one. I'm not going to tell you that Mary gets deified, but she does ascend into heaven, right? It's a little, a little strange. You only need to do that when you've got no room for women in the Godhead. The other problem is when, when you convert God to emperor, emperor is arbitrary, <laughs> completely above the peons and serfs in the church, right? We exist solely at the pleasure of the emperor. I think it's important to ask, is God like that? That was their model. Emperors like that. God's like the emperor. God's like that. So, wow, it's nice to have a mother figure, right? who intimately cares and listens and intercedes for you because the emperor is too busy. I mean, this is a lot of what happens. And actually, the creed represents that transformation happening because, remember, before the creed, before Constantine, Christianity was illegal. The biggest church made in people's homes, which meant it had 30 people. They had no public buildings. Their clergy had no exemptions. There, were, there was a bishop in every single house church. And Constantine changes all of that. So there's a hierarchy in the clergy. They get public buildings. Um, bishops now become judges for the empire. All of that's really different. And that's what sets the string in motion, right, of, of God being above us to God being way above us. And, and how do we bridge that gap? Well, it's with the saints and it's with Mary. Well, I think you could argue that. I'm just uh, find it interesting that historically, uh, three twenty-five, she was on an equal level of, of importance with the Holy Spirit. Co- in the process. And it's the language that changes as we come to an English language version of the Nicene Creed. It tends to diminish her. It's a little unfortunate. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. And, you know, um, I have to tell you, I'm not an expert linguist. So I can read expert linguist arguments, which I've done, but I'm not one of those people myself. And, and to know when and how, um, there's these funny bits in history that work through that. But again, this is one of them as well. And the reason we decided for our sake became man is because we decided a long time ago that man represented humanity. Many of us still use that in our everyday parlance, like we talked about three weeks ago. However, people slightly above my generation and lower are saying, that does not represent me as a woman. And I think they're right. I think they're right. The reason I think they're right is that words create our reality. They don't just reflect it. Well, 
And I would tell you, against some other folks that taught me, I think it could use a little more wordsmithing. <laughs> it's been changed anyway. That's right. And we don't share the same idioms that the people who wrote the creed did anyway. Hence, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. That's a little weird for us. Why do we say that every single week? Because it meant something back then that it no longer means to us now. Does that make sense? I don't mean we should snip that out. I just mean that context has been lost to us. Why that was so important. I sure did. Actually, I grew up um, to the right of that. I grew up in the independent Christian church. Do you think, and this is my opinion, I think I grew up worshiping words. Uh, and the more I have lived and written and stuff, I have about decided that words are almost useless. Uh, he's lecture. Yeah, so I think we do have this. Is, if you didn't hear this, there's a tendency sometimes to worship the words instead of realizing the words are trying to point us to a larger reality in God. In some ways, this is what happens in the Roman church compared to the Orthodox church. They look at people praying toward icons, and they think that the Orthodox Christians are praying to them. And in the Orthodox mindset, they're praying through them. The icons are there to direct them into the larger life and larger reality of God. I think the argument you're making is that creeds, when carefully used, are there to point us into a larger and somewhat different reality than we've settled on. And when we use the creeds as enforcement instead of directive, we might be misusing the creed. And another way to say it, I think, in the Southern Baptist tradition I grew up in, nothing against the people, they do great stuff, but in my own experience, I worshipped the Bible instead of the God the Bible was acting, was, was trying to point to. I focused so much on the words and the phraseology that I missed what those words and phraseology were really trying to invite me into. Grace, larger life salvation. By the way, the Bible doesn't use the word hell a single time. So it was interesting that we did that. We put hell all over the place. Hell is the low point outside Jerusalem where you burn trash and your children in service of foreign gods, and it's where all the gunk flows out of the temple, the leftovers. We turned that into an eternal place with pot pokers and ironic punishments. I'm not saying that isn't real. I'm just saying it's not biblical. And when we did that, we, we, we forgot that there's plenty of people that are living a hellish existence right now. I've done it. Haven't you? For years, unfortunately. The sad bit, right, is even when I get out of there, man, I love going back. <laughs> 
I love going right back to that place of misery. If I didn't, I wouldn't keep going back, but I do. All of that's about here and now. You know? That's why I think it's helpful to push on the words a little bit and say, no, 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 it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean a limited version we've, we've settled on. There's a lot of range in the words. There's a lot of range in what Jesus' life and death did for us. A lot of range and who it was for and why. A lot of range in the word salvation. I gotta tell you, I love quoting people who redefine the words. Barbara Bound Taylor says, salvation happens anytime someone with a key uses it to unlock a lock they otherwise could have locked. Now that's a cool definition, right? It's cool because salvation happens to us all the time if we're open to it not just at the pearly gates with those two keys, you see. Salvation happens when we forgive somebody, when they forgive us. Salvation happens when we listen to somebody who's not worth listening to. You, 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 you know what I mean? That happens on a daily basis for me. That people offer me salvation, and I'm invited to do that as well. And the creed is talking about that too. It's not just talking about this limited thing. And that's where the words offer us up. Again, the hard thing about the creed is you can use it to decide who's in and who's out. Or you can use it as a window through which we can all pass into a different place that is hopefully better than the one we've been living in. Think how different those functions are, right? A buzzer and a door. Um, Incarnation is really important. That's the Latin word, right? Carne, you know, carne asada, carne con pollo, became flesh. So for, our, for us and for our salvation, the co-eternal, top tier of infinity, logos, through which all things were created, took on a body. Well, that's sort of the one thing that makes Christianity distinct from all the other world religions. Honestly, the Incarnation, I know what you're thinking. No, Krishna does that. Krishna does that. Krishna comes in lots of, or not just Krishna, that's, um, who is Krishna? That's Vishnu. Vishnu does it. He comes as Krishna. He comes as Rama. He comes as a turtle. He comes as a magic turtle. He comes as a magic Krishna and a magic Rama. Jesus comes in flesh, and there's no magic in him. He had acne. How do I know that? Teenagers have acne. He had body odor. Teenagers have body odor. <laughs> he couldn't slam dunk on an 11-foot basketball goal. Not just because they didn't have those goals, but, <laughs> but because nobody can do that. You just think through this stuff. I know what you're thinking, Mike, didn't Jesus do miracles? And the answer is God did miracles. God did them through Jesus. He didn't do them himself because that's how our bodies work. That's what the prophets did. They didn't do the miracles themselves. God did the miracles through them. So what that means, right, is Jesus has to totally, God has to totally accept every human limitation that we are all too aware of. Easier to do when you live only to be 33. <laughs> but remember, that's the edge of life expectancy at the time of Jesus is 33. It's a pretty bold claim to think, right, that God submits to pain. Submits, that means Jesus is in pain and doesn't use his God status to fix it. Would take a lot of control, I would imagine. Jesus is sick and doesn't heal himself. Jesus is sad and he weeps. That one we know, because <laughs> he does. Let's sort of think through that. It's really distinct in the world of religions. And this is actually the number one reason why we're at odds with Islam, is that God's too great to do that. 
This is one of the problems in the church after the creed is a lot of people don't buy it because they say God's too great to do that. So they come up with this idea that says it just seemed like it was God, but it wasn't really. Or God adopted Jesus at the baptism, but left before the cross because God can't die. The incarnation says God died. If you take it to its logical conclusion, God died. I mean, actually, I like that idea. <laughs> I like that idea. Because, of course, what it means is when we die, we don't die alone. We die with God. We die inside of God. So that wherever we go, whether we try to flee on the wings of the morning, we can never get away from the presence of God. I used to find that terrifying. Because <laughs> if God's out to punish you, can I just go to the bathroom by myself? But, but, I, but I think this is where you come full circle, right? If God is out to enjoy you, God will follow you anywhere and try to enjoy you everywhere. That's a much different image. It took me like three years with a spiritual director to get any progress on that. <laughs> yes, ma'am. That's the goal, is just that we think about it, you know? There's a lot here to think about. And remember that this creed really became a watershed for a long time as to who was a heretic and would be persecuted and attacked and killed and who was orthodox and a real Christian. Okay, we made it to Jesus being incarnate. What's the next one? For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Not for God's sake, for our sake. <laughs> Just think about this. For our sake. Pontius Pilate, we know, is a real person, so I think the goal of that is he's situated in time. It's a real event. It's worth thinking about. Um, there's this theologian named Dunce Scotus. You know about him already because of the Dunce cap that he wore. <laughs> which is that triangle thing. He wore that around all the time. And, and he, at one point, was a very influential Christian theologian, but then he ended up losing the day um, in the wake of Thomas Aquinas and a few other people with his crazy ideas. So a dunce cap was a sign of ignorance, right? That's what we decided. It's spelled like this, by the way. Then Scotus wrote this really interesting thought, and this is the last one I'm going to give, with you, give, give to you today. Um, it, it, there's this idea theologically called oh man this is too big to use in Scrabble lapsarianism which is the fall it's when humans lapsed right and, and then there's these other ideas like when uh, did basically the idea is Dunce's idea is not that the cross was God's emergency plan when people lapsed. Then Scotus says, and this is interesting, it's in the book of Revelation, it's a single verse. It says, before the foundation of the world, Christ was crucified. I know what you're thinking. No, he wasn't. There wasn't any world. How could a historical event have happened before there was history? Then Scotus says that the cross, that Jesus is offering himself on our behalf, is not a temporal event, it's an eternal one. And this is really weird, because if God's eternal, all of time is like a dot. It has no mass, right? No matter how big it is, it pales in consideration of eternity, right? So what Dunscoda says is, the cross is a historical event, but really it's an eternal event. It's who God is, it just happened to intersect us at the year 33 or 30 of our common era. Then Scotus says, the cross wasn't God's plan to fix our mistake. The cross is what God had in mind all along. That's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? And that's how the cross is an eternal event, and that's how death is part of God, right? But of course, only one small part, because the life after the cross right, is, what, is, is, is what Easter is all about. <laughs> That, that even death is not the end, 
it's real and it hurts and it involves suffering and God didn't come to stop death. God came to stop death. <laughs> this one God made or created and said very good. This one is not the one that we're to live in and God defeated that death. There. By doing this. <laughs> I think that's pretty interesting. It's pretty sophisticated reasoning, don't you think? Many of us want to live forever. In which body do you want to live forever? <laughs> 30 was a good year for me. <laughs> Although, even when I was 30, there were other bodies I would have preferred to my own. I don't know about you. <laughs> do I get to have those? Ooh, what if I got the body I have now? Ooh. I hope there's Advil in heaven. Oh, I'm well aware. I'm, I'm well on the way. So, so um, that I wanted to leave you with, um, for our sake, for our sake, for our sake, not for God's, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate as a way of understanding, again, this is an eternal event that happens to coincide with a moment in time, but tells you about God before and after for all time. Okay, maybe that was really weird. Next week, we're going to talk about the organ. So just be prepared. We're going to take a week off the creed like we love to do, and then we'll come back and talk about the rest of the Jesus bit in two weeks on St. Andrew's Day.